Well, I know that uh, every church has challenges. Uh, Even today, there may be challenges that this church is facing. You can think of the unique challenges that various churches in this country may be facing. People are worried that significant cultural and political changes, how are those things going to affect the church? I know that all of us most recently have been concerned about how COVID-19 is going to affect our lives, how it's going to affect the economy, how it's going to affect our health, and of course we're all wondering about how it's going to affect the church as well. Now what will be the effect of having spent weeks without gathering as a church? What's going to be the long-term consequences of having to spend so many Sundays social distancing from one another? What's going to happen if we can't meet the church's budget due to lower giving as a result of an economy that's not as healthy as it was? I know that these are questions that have been on my mind as a pastor in in China. Uh, As a pastor in Shanghai, we've been dealing with those questions uh, along with many others uh, since January. I mentioned already that half of our church is currently scattered outside of the country uh, with no idea when they're going to be able to, un, uh, to return. With borders closed to foreigners in Shanghai, uh, it seems like uh, that's something that's going to go on and persist for quite a while. We do have uh, one lay elder that's still in the church. He's trying to hold everything together, uh, even though he's working a, a full-time job himself. And our senior pastor Uh, actually recently relocated back to the U.S. He's not planning on returning. And this month, we had this transition plan for me to transition into that role this month. Uh, And all of that has just sort of been thrown out the window. Uh, We put it on hold, and now we're not really sure what's going to happen. It's a grief for our church that is struggling. Uh, It's a challenge for our church. I think it's easy during these days to worry about our churches, about ourselves. You know, are we going to survive? What will we actually be going back to in China if and when we actually can go back? Our church is facing these challenges. What challenge is this church facing? Maybe you're worried about how COVID-19 is going to affect this church in the long run, or maybe your concerns are even more serious than that. Uh, I know some people Uh, They talk about how they love Jesus, but they really struggle with Jesus' church. Maybe that's something that you struggle with as well. Maybe you wouldn't go that far, but maybe there are Christians in this room who have hurt you, and that's a challenge for you, even this morning. We're all different people. We have different preferences. We have different opinions, and coming together in unity can be a, a difficult, challenging thing. Maybe even though this room is full of people, you come here week in and week out and you feel isolated or lonely. That can be a challenge. Every church has its challenges. I wonder what challenges you can think of for your own church. This morning, I want to look at the first nine verses of Paul's letter to a challenged church, and that's the church in Corinth. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians. This church in Corinth was challenged. 
In fact, the Corinthian church would sort of be a mascot for those who have problems with the church because there are so many problems in this church. Paul writes to a church that is divided over leadership. Uh, This is a church that is failing to repent of sexual immorality and idolatry. Members were upset with one another, even taking one another to court. There were these intense debates and problems and challenges in this church over the Lord's Supper and about gender roles and about the spiritual gifts. All of these things were a source of great division. This was a church that was in trouble. And I think the source of the problems in this church are also the source of many of the problems that we face today in our churches. And so what I'm interested in looking with you at this morning are Paul's first words to this troubled church. You know, what are the first sentences that Paul says to this church that is facing all of these challenges? What does he first want to convey to this church that is facing these challenges? Let's look at his first sentences. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. This is what Paul says. He says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think the main point of this passage is this. Church, God is overwhelmingly committed to you, now and forever. God is overwhelmingly committed to you, church, now and forever. Despite the myriad of problems and challenges in this church, many of which are directed against Paul himself, Paul starts by thanking God for all the good things that God has done for these Christians, for this church. Paul knows that God is committed to these people, and that affects how Paul is going to interact with them. And so as we consider these verses, I want us to meditate on some of the good things that God has done in the lives of every Christian and in every Christian church. These are strange days for our churches. We're coming out at a time when we couldn't meet for a while. Some maybe still can't come for a variety of reasons. All of us are social distancing. And so I pray that as we study this passage, I pray that we'll be encouraged to love and appreciate what God has done in our lives and in the lives of this church. I I pray that we will be spurred on to renew our commitment to what God himself is committed to. And I come to you today as somebody needing these words. 
because I'm worried. And so I need to be reminded of God's word to churches that face challenges. And so this morning, I want to consider from this passage five good things that God does in every Christian, including you. Five good things that God does in every Christian. And here's the first one. God has called us. God has called us. You can see in verse 1 that this letter is sent by Paul and this man named Sosthenes. Now, the church in Corinth, was, they were very familiar with Paul and Sosthenes. Uh, you can read about Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18. That's something you could, could read this afternoon if you want to. Around 50 AD, Paul spent 18 months in this city, which just had a reputation for immorality and, and also many flourishing false religions. And yet God apparently granted him many conversions in this difficult environment. Crispus was the Jewish ruler of the synagogue at the time, and according to Acts 18, he became a Christian through Paul's ministry. And then after this, a man named Sosthenes became the ruler of the synagogue. And if that Sosthenes is the same as this Sosthenes, and that means that Paul won two Jewish rulers of the synagogue to faith in Jesus through his ministry. So you can just see that the gospel was advancing in Corinth underneath Paul's ministry. And a couple years later, after Paul had left Corinth, he's with Sosthenes, and he sends this letter addressing the great many problems that this church is facing. Paul put a lot of hard work into this church. But before his very eyes, he was watching that work tear itself apart. And yet notice in this passage, how Paul addresses the Corinthian church. Look at verse 2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Despite all of his work evangelizing and ministering and, and pouring himself into this church, Paul knew that this was not his church. And even though the Corinthian believers were creating many problems for themselves, Paul also didn't see it as their church. This was God's church. And of course, we know that the same is true about Harbin's community. This is God's church. We may be indebted to the Apostle Paul. We may be indebted to Deemer. We may be indebted to other current and past elders of this church, but this church is not any single individual's church. Harbin's community is a church of God, and God knows this church, and God has not forgotten this church, and God will not forget this church. We can trust that God will take care of us in all things because we are His. How can we be so certain of that? Well, again, look at verse 2. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. The church is the collection of those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. That word sanctified means made holy. It's not uncommon to hear sanctified or or holy defined as set apart. That's true. That's a good definition. Uh, But we can expand on that definition, I think. 
To be made holy or sanctified is not only to be set apart, it's to be devoted to God. God has set us apart and he's devoted us to himself for his special purposes and and use. He has sanctified us in Christ. We've been made acceptable to God. We're able to enter into his presence because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. You all, the people of Harbin's community, are his church. You're set apart and you're devoted to him, by him, in Christ. Now, that's not just good information to think about. I mean, it is good to think about that. But it's not just, you know, good to just kind of leave it there. The fact that we are sanctified in Christ Jesus informs what we are supposed to do in our daily lives. Uh, it's quite common for Christians to ask questions and even, you know, worry about uh, what are we supposed to do in our life? I think that's a question that I get all the time in China. What is God's will for my life? Those questions, of course, take different forms. Who am I supposed to marry? What job am I supposed to have? What city am I supposed to move to? Am I even in the right job? What have I accomplished in my life? Or what am I going to accomplish in my life? What is my calling? That's a question that we often have or we often hear. Maybe you this morning feel a little bit jealous of the Apostle Paul in verse 1 who so confidently can say that he's called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a man who knew exactly who he was and exactly what he was supposed to do. But what about us? What is our calling? What are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? Maybe you've been wondering what you're supposed to be doing during this time when we're at home a lot because of COVID-19. What are we supposed to do with our time? Well, Paul actually tells us, doesn't he? Verse 2, you are sanctified in Christ Jesus and you are called to be saints. Other translations say you're called to be holy. This is your calling. This is God's will for your life. If you're a Christian, this is both who you are and what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be holy. God has set you apart. He's devoted you to himself. And so now you are called to live a life that is set apart and devoted to God. You're to obey him. You're to pursue holiness. You're to embrace his commands as good. You're to put more effort and intentionality and sweat into living out this clearly revealed calling than you do about questions about who you should marry or what job you should take or where you should live or how you should vote even. Focus on what God has clearly revealed in his word and then let God work out in his kind providence all the other things that he hasn't revealed. You're called by God to be holy. That's your calling. But quickly, notice that we've been called to be holy together. That's what verse 2 says. We remember that this is a letter written to a church, not to one individual, but to a church. Your status as sanctified in Christ Jesus and your calling to live out holiness is a call to live that out in the context of of a local church. And notice also in verse 2 that it is 
specifically a local church. It's the church of God in Corinth. And so you're to live out this calling in a specific local church just like this one. Of course, that's not connected from churches and Christians all over the world. You're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that the church of God is is universal. God has saints all over the world. But those saints express themselves in local churches. You know, one of the best ways you can serve my church in Shanghai is actually by being a faithful member right here in your community. We serve the universal and global church by linking up in local churches and living out our calling there. We're to be holy together. So that's the first thing. God has called us, and he's called us to be saints. Here's the second thing. God, according to Paul, has given us grace. God has given us grace. Really, the the rest of this passage is a summary of what Paul prays to God concerning the Corinthian believers. Notice in verse 3, he prays for them to have grace and peace from God. That's a, a prayer that they would apprehend more and more, the bountiful grace of God and increasingly come to enjoy the peace that God gives for those who are in Christ. That would be a great prayer for you to pray for one another. You just pray for the members of this church to know more and more the grace and peace of God. You don't even have to know one another very well in order to pray that prayer for each other, just as Paul prays it for this church in Corinth. And then from there, Paul goes on to encourage the Corinthians by what he regularly thanks God for related to them. He thanks God in verse four for the grace that was given to them in Christ. Now, I think this is remarkable. All right, remember, this is a church that's in trouble. If Paul were a secular man, he never would find things to be thankful for concerning this church because it was just that bad. And yet that's the first thing he does. The first thing he does is thank God for them. Now, it's not that Paul is going to ignore the problems in this church. It's not that the challenges that this church faces aren't hurtful to Paul. He's going to address them, and they are hurtful. But instead, Paul, as, as one commentator notes, looks at the Corinthian church as it is in Christ before he looks at anything else that is true of this church. So he thanks God that they have received grace in Christ. He acknowledges that God gave his own son for this group of people, however challenged they may be. God has brought them forgiveness of sins. God has reconciled himself to them, and he's made this group of people his own. And friends, these wonderful gifts of God's grace have been given to each of us in this church as well. And so I think we have to have the same attitude towards God's churches, towards other Christians, even towards this church here. We must have the same attitude that Paul has. We must first view one another as we are in Christ. God has been lavishly generous 
to this church and to each one of us as individuals. We have received grace from him and every Christian you know has been forgiven of their sins by God. Every Christian you know is a child of God. Every Christian you know has been brought into the family of God and has been made your brother or sister in Christ. Every Christian you know has been spared from the wrath of God. Every Christian you know has been redeemed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so when we encounter problems in the church or when we encounter problems with individual Christians, a good first practice would be to acknowledge God's grace in that person or in that church. Knowing that God has given grace to each of us should color how we interact with one another, especially when there are issues or hurts between us. Notice that Paul's first response to the Corinthians is to point out evidences of God's grace in their life. That's a phrase that I think it'd be good for you to commit to memory, maybe write it down, evidences of God's grace. We should look for evidences of God's grace in one another's life. We should more thoroughly look for the evidences of God's grace in one another's life than we do for the flaws. And then we should thank God for those evidences of his grace, knowing that they're a result of his generous work in our life. And then we should point those evidences of grace out to one another. We're so good at pointing out each other's flaws. We should point out evidences of God's grace in one another. Just consider your words to or about fellow Christians in the last week. Have evidences of God's grace been the focus of your words? Calling out another brother or sister for sin, that is good, that's right, that is necessary. We have to do that. It's needed. But have you at least started, as Paul does, with the recognition that your brother or sister has received grace from God? Friends, if that hasn't been your focus, then you need to repent. You need to repent of sin. Each Christian is a recipient of grace from God. You are a recipient of grace from God. And so our words and our attitudes and our prayers and our interactions with one another should reflect a belief in that. Not because of how good we are, but because of how good God is in us. The fact that God graciously works in each Christian and each church, that is something that is grounds for thanksgiving. Just as Paul is thankful for this challenged church. And so I pray that this community, I pray this for myself, would be notorious in our awareness of God's work in each other's lives. I pray that we would not begin with how another believer has faulted us, but with thanksgiving that God's grace has triumphed over a person's past sins. And I pray that we'd be more ready to remind one another of God's past grace than our past sin. Here's another good thing that God has done for us. Another evidence of his grace in our life, in fact. The third thing, God has enriched us in every way. God has enriched us in every way. You know, one of the great concerns during this coronavirus outbreak is the economy. Uh, I'm concerned for people that I know who are are likely to be driven into further poverty because they can't work right now. 
Maybe you know somebody like that, or maybe you yourself are in that situation. Maybe you've lost your job as a result of the events of the last couple months. For Christians, though, there is a kind of wealth that doesn't disappear when tragedy strikes. There's a kind of wealth that we can't lose. In verse 5, Paul says that Christians have been enriched in Christ in every way. The Corinthian Christians, they are not spiritually impoverished, and neither are we. They have been enriched, Paul says, in all speech and in all knowledge. That's an interesting thing for Paul to say they've been enriched in because speech and knowledge are actually the two categories that this church struggles with the most. The source of their problems are their speech and their knowledge. And yet Paul says they've been enriched in speech and knowledge. Even though these Christians here are using these gifts from God in the wrong way, Note that Paul still sees them as gifts from God. We read that Paul thanks God that the Corinthians have these gifts in abundance. The the presence of these gifts, whatever problems they may actually cause, reveal that God is at work in them. And church, you have been enriched in every way as well. You've been enriched with speech and knowledge just as these Christians have. I wonder this morning if you're ever discouraged by your words. You know, maybe you think you don't use the right words at the right time. Or maybe you think you say the wrong thing often. Did you know that in the scriptures you have a treasure trove full of good and useful words to offer people? When your words are are grounded in scripture and the gospel message, you have the ability to speak truths about God and build others up. You you don't have to use your words to say unloving or untrue things about others. You can use God's word to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ. And likewise, you might not think yourself a very smart or clever person. Maybe it takes you a lot of time to process ideas but you have been given the richest knowledge through the gospel message. If you're a Christian, you know why we exist. You know what our greatest problem is. You know how forgiveness was won for us. You know how God can be known truly through Christ. Is there any greater body of knowledge than that? The most important problems in the world have have been solved in Christ and you have been enriched through the gospel with both the knowledge and the ability to communicate that knowledge to others. And not only that, but look at verse 6. Paul says you've been enriched in these ways even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Paul says that these gifts that we possess as believers are confirmation that the gospel is true and that it has taken root in our lives. As our speech and knowledge is transformed by the gospel, we become living proof to the world that the gospel is in fact true. That's a great privilege 
that we all share. And then better still, I think, is verse 7. Paul says, you've been rich in these ways so that you are not lacking in any gift. Paul wants to emphasize his point. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift. You know, we who are in Christ are not spiritually poor. Now, that doesn't mean we can just sort of go and and grab any spiritual gift that we so choose. Instead, I think what that means is is what Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says, the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also graciously give us all that we need spiritually? Or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So none of us lack what we need in order to grow into Christian maturity. But of course, as individuals, we don't get to just sort of select whatever spiritual gift suits us. The, the you in verse 7 is plural, right? This is a letter that's written to a local church. So he thanks God that they together don't lack any spiritual gift. Friends, if you cut yourself off from the local church or pull away from it or even never really push into it, you're going to fail to take advantage of the spiritual riches that are actually available to you when we pursue God together. So friends, don't do that. Tap into the spiritual gift available to you by centralizing your life around the members of this church, whatever challenges may come up. Paul's going to have more to say about spiritual gifts and how they're useful to the church later in the letter. You can go read that if you'd like, and you can ask Jared any questions you have about those things, because uh, I'm not going to be here. So ask him. But do notice the final clause of verse 7. We are not lacking in any gift as we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus. These riches are available to us. They are ours. God has not forgotten us. We can't lose them. We only need to tap into them in the community that God has provided for us. But maybe you don't feel all that spiritual. Maybe you're not even sure what spiritual gifts are yours. This is a good verse for you to meditate on because this is a promise from God that you do not lack, and it is a promise that is held in place until our Lord returns. It can't be taken from you. I wonder if you've had dreams crushed. I wonder if you've had to abandon plans that you made. I wonder if you've had disappointments or treasured moments taken from you. Well, it's not possible with these treasures. You are enriched, lacking nothing that you need for spiritual growth. And our ultimate hope can't be taken from us. All we need to do, keep faithfully waiting. Waiting, arm in arm with God's people for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the fourth good thing that God is doing in each of us. God will sustain us to the end. God 
will sustain us to the end. You know, in God's kindness, difficult situations often prove fruitful and useful. The virus situation, as much as I pray that it would end soon and I'd be able to go back to my home in China, I think that this situation has a great ability to be fruitful and useful to us, to me, to my church. Because for one, we are reminded, I think, of how fleeting life is. And we're going to die. And there is incredibly rich spiritual benefits in remembering that we are going to die one day. If this coronavirus situation unhinges the idols of health and causes us to meditate more on our own mortality, well, I think that can be a very good thing for us. Certainly, it's something that I hope and pray for for my own church. Have you ever found yourself fearful, maybe fearful in recent days? Are you desperately trying to hold on to an illusion that you control your life? Friends, there's a better way to live. Look at verse 8. Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. So we're reminded here of that fourth good thing that God is doing. God will sustain us to the end. Uh, just consider the word end there in verse 8. Consider that word. What is that word pointing to? It was pointing to two events, I think. One, the end of our current lives, and then two, the day when our Lord Jesus will return. Our current lives are, are going to come to an end, and God knows the exact hour that that is going to happen. That hour is immovable. That hour is fixed. It cannot be escaped. And our God will sustain us until that day, until that appointed hour. You know, Christians should have an altogether different response and disposition concerning this virus than non-Christians. And it's not just sort of ignoring the problem or anything like that. Instead, it's we believe that God will sustain us. God will care for us. He will help us. He will preserve us. He will maintain us. As Christians confronting this virus, we want to ask primarily what it reveals about us and what it reveals about God. And maybe we need to repent of an unhealthy idolatry of health or even life. Again, that doesn't mean we don't take precautions. It just means that we look for any idols that may be in our life. Who is in control? God is. He sustains us. And our hope is not long life. Our hope is that when God so wills, we will end. And until that day, he will sustain us. And then on that day, our God will grant us life anew. And we also don't have to fear the end because of that next phrase in verse 8, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the day that we stand before our God, we who are in Christ will be guiltless. God sustains us in order to present us guiltless. That's what we have in the gospel. You know, if you read this letter, you're going to find a church that is involved in sin. 
But here, Paul says that they will be guiltless on the day of the Lord Jesus. And the same is true of us. On that day, no claim can be made against a Christian. And that isn't because guilt is just a feeling that we need to kind of get over. It's not because God doesn't really judge sin. No, guilt before God is very real. Sinners stand under the condemnation of a holy God. But God forgives sinners in Christ. And so you, Christian, will stand before God one day guiltless. No guilt. He will look at you and he will say, you are not guilty because of Christ. Praise God. Finally, verse 9. Paul says, God is faithful by whom you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We learn here that one further good thing that Jesus does, that God does in and for each Christian is he calls us into fellowship with Jesus. We enjoy fellowship with Jesus. God calls us to enjoy fellowship with Jesus. Paul summarizes what we've seen over and over again already this morning. He says, God is faithful. How do we know that we enjoy all of these gifts from God? Because God is faithful. How do we know that God gives grace and enriches us and sustains us? Because God is faithful. How do we know that we will stand before God one day guiltless? Because God is faithful. We can depend on God. Here, Paul is saying that the church is God's responsibility. This church, my church in Shanghai, it's God's responsibility, and he is committed to it. He is committed to us. He is committed to you. Our faithful God has called us and secured us into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And what does that mean exactly? Well, it means that though we once were enemies of God, Now, we are at peace with him through Jesus Christ. It means all the wonderful gifts that we've been talking about this morning really are ours. Just look back through this passage and notice how many times Jesus' name is mentioned. Ten times in nine verses. All the gifts we have been talking about this morning come in and through Jesus So if you're not a Christian this morning and you want access to these gifts that are so good, you have to come through Christ. You have to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. Jesus has won these gifts for us and he secured them for us in his death and resurrection. And we have them because we have fellowship with him by faith. Friends, what better gift could God give us than fellowship with Jesus. And right now, my family, we're considering the possibility that we may have lost our home in China. We may not be able to return. What things have you lost? What things are you worried about losing? Well, one thing that this passage teaches us, as one person notes, in giving us Christ, God has given us the best that he could. In giving us Christ, God has given us the best that he could. 
This is why when we are tempted to doubt God's gift to us or to our fellow Christians, we should remember our dear Savior Jesus Christ because it is in fellowship with him that we see God doing good things in us. The Puritan minister William Gouge was a man whose final days on earth was they're marked with physical pain. And yet even as he faced death, he enjoyed fellowship with Christ. Gouge wrote, when I look upon myself, I see nothing but emptiness and weakness. But when I look upon Christ, I see nothing but fullness and sufficiency. Friends, that's what it means to have fellowship with Christ. We see in him there is fullness and sufficiency. There's enough in him. We may lose everything. There's enough in Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in 1563, also, I think, helps us to more fully understand this gift of fellowship with Jesus. In that catechism, the question is asked, what is your only comfort in life and in death? We need comfort in death. Sometimes we need comfort in life. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Here's the answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope in life and death that we have fellowship with Jesus. And this is the hope of each and every brother and sister in this church. It is also the gift that God has given us. And it is therefore secure, along with all the other gifts that we've discussed this morning. God is overwhelmingly committed to his church now and forever. And may he give us the grace to be committed to what he is committed to, to his people. May we love the fellowship we have with Jesus and may we love those he is committed to, the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in uncertain times, we know that you are certain. You are faithful to us. You have provided so much for us. These gifts most importantly, the gift of Christ. Lord, we know that he is enough. Father, I pray that you would help us to live like we know that and believe it because it's true. Jesus is enough. Father, encourage our hearts this morning in the knowledge that your grace has done each of the things that we see in this passage and we lack nothing in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.